Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have an excellent show for you today. We've got big news, Amazon making an acquisition. We're going to talk about smart cameras and how smart they really are. News from Mobile World Congress. Bunches of little news bits, including some fundings, some movement in the space, and Samsung news, plus some new gear. We're also going to talk briefly about my visit to Bosch Connected World and... Our guest this week is Dominic Sheener of IOTA, which is the, oh, <laughs> it's a blockless blockchain, y'all. So we'll be explaining what that is and where we're going to see this happening and how the blockchain isn't just about cryptocurrencies, which if you listen to the show, you already know, but you'll learn more with Dominic. And now a word from our sponsor. This week's show is brought to you by the Unomi platform. You all have probably used the free Unomi app before to control the smart home devices in your home, or you've heard us talk about it on the podcast. Well, this January, the Unomi team announced a big project that they've been working on behind the scenes for the past four years, the Unomi platform. The Unomi platform is a cloud-based platform as a service that allows developers to build a more connected smart home. Essentially, Unomi is building the Heroku or Parse of consumer IoT. This is really exciting stuff. So this week, as part of their sponsorship of the IoT podcast, the Unomi platform is debuting a five-part sponsored series on what the next billion dollar smart home startup will look like. Part one is available today for our listeners if you go to https colon slash slash platform dot dot co slash Stacy on IoT. There, you're going to be able to read why the team at Unomi believes the smart home industry might be stuck and what will really need to change before we have more billion dollar smart home unicorns. It's a really timely topic given this ring's announcement. So go to HTTPS colon slash slash platform dot dot co slash Stacy on IoT. I'll include that in the sponsorship link as part of the show notes as well. And for those who don't remember or know, Unomi is Y-O-N-O-M-I. And now, back to the show. Okay, as referenced in our ad, oh my gosh, you guys, Amazon just this week said that it would buy Ring, the maker of the Ring doorbells, Ring lights, and Ring outdoor security cameras. And one day, maybe the Ring home security system, which is currently being, cannot sell because of a lawsuit between it and ADT. So... Yeah, that's that's part of the story, too. But I guess there's a couple pieces here to unpack. One is how much. We don't know how much Amazon is buying Ring for. Rumor was $1 billion, but then people are saying it's the second largest amount that Amazon has spent on an acquisition. So maybe a little bit more than a billion. And the second largest, well, the largest was Whole Foods at $13.7 billion. And right. then... Zappos appears to be the second largest at 1.2 billion. Right. Where at Recode, they're putting the price between 1.2 and 1.8 billion. And that's a pretty hefty number. (laughs) It's a hefty number. So we got some data from IHS, the analyst firm, and they said that they estimate there are about 1.2 million ring doorbells out there. So if we use the 1.2 million ring units sold, and we say on the low side, this is a $1.2 billion deal. Amazon's paying like $1,000 per customer or per doorbell 
to buy a ring. And I know they're not just buying customers, they're buying, you know, rings, assets and IP. And I get that. But wow, that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. It's but you know, I suppose, I suppose it's no, actually. (laughs) No, it's just a lot of money. (laughs) I'm like, yes, (laughs) it is a lot of money. But we shouldn't ignore the fact that in December, Amazon also bought Blink, which is a security company that also makes security cameras and doorbells. The interesting thing to know here, Amazon seems to be, there's a couple things. This gets into what I wrote about when the deal was announced, but we'll review it quickly. One, home security is essential for the smart home. I know we talk a lot about automation because that's where our heart lies, but most consumers buy into the smart home with home security systems. It is the number one reason that people buy stuff. Number Mm -hmm. two is energy efficiency. So you can't be in the smart home without home security. And Amazon, as it's fallen into this magical Madam A place where it's like, hey, we're kind of like the leader in connecting stuff in the smart home. We should really double down on that. I think what's happened is they bought Blink for a technology prowess. Blink Mm -hmm. has, it started out as a chip company making a low power video processor. And that kind of technology is going to be key if we want these kind of sensors around the home at a low price and being battery powered. What it's getting with Ring is market share. Ring is by far the leader in this market. It has, according to IHS, it has about a 45% share of the America's market in video doorbells. So that's number one. The others, there's Nest just launched a doorbell, there's Skybell, there's August had a doorbell, but really Ring was the contender. Mm-hmm. So Amazon gets all of this, plus it gets the Zonoff team that Ring actually, we can't say- Acquihired. They, they didn't actually acquire them, they just hired them. Um, <laughs> that actually caused the lawsuit with ADT, because ADT had invested in Zonoff and was relying on Zonoff to do their security product, their smart home kind of security product, and then they were working for Ring. <laughs> well, so. that, that sort of gets me to the other thing Amazon is getting here. Lawsuits. What happens with the prior suits? I mean, obviously, they're not going away. And Amazon has deeper pockets than Ring does, obviously. So does that change? What happened Mm -hmm. to Nest in the Honeywell lawsuit after Google acquired them? My gosh, just a few months later, it was settled. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe that's all part of this big number somehow. Yeah. And so it also, in addition to the ADT lawsuit, it was also being sued by Skybell for patent infringement on various doorbell Video doorbell related patents. Right. So I don't know what happens to those. I have reached out to people. It's so new that people are kind of like, ah, shrug. Uh, Right, right. We'll figure that out and talk to you. (laughs) We may never, ever find out. Like, I'm going to assume the same, that these suits will be settled. You'll hear about it soon or in the next coming months. And I doubt we'll ever hear the sums that were presented for settling these suits. I would love to know that because taking backing that money out of the purchase price for Ring, that's really what Amazon is paying for Ring, in my opinion. That's true. Well, and Ring has raised a lot of money. They were actually going back again to the market with a round that would value them at a billion dollars, which is or around a right. billion dollars. It was just sub a billion. So it makes sense. The price that people heard, it makes sense that it was around a billion. And then it also makes sense if it's over a little bit. Right. They went through six rounds and raised about $210 million, and then we're going to go looking for more. And that kind of speaks to how hard it is to profit in this market as well. Right. Ring was always going to, Ring wanted to go public. It wanted to be, you know, a legitimate publicly traded company. That was the exit. And 
what happened is it just, it couldn't get there fast enough. It was selling well, but the doorbell, my understanding is, has a relatively high bill of materials. They pay licensing fees on their video processing, which means there's no scale potential there. There could be now with Amazon buying it Mm -hmm. because they could- Because you use Blink's technology. Well, you could put Blink's technology inside and then have Amazon do the video processing itself on its own cloud if it's not- AWS. Yeah. Right. So there are definitely economic advantages to coming into Amazon. Mm -hmm. So all in all, it's a good deal. The other thing that I think is really important to note, well, there's two. One is if you have a ring doorbell, it is going to work for now just the same as it always has. So that means it will stay integrated with other platforms that aren't the Amazon Echo. Ring says they are still continuing development on their HomeKit doorbell. Mm -hmm. That's, That's not out yet, but it's, you know... That's not a new story for HomeKit stuff. So keep waiting on that. And then will that continue? I hope so. I would hate to see the, you know, Google fights, especially with Google launching their visual display stuff. I would love to be able to look at who's at my ring doorbell on my, you know, Google, I don't want to call it the Google show. The smart screen, like the smart that we saw screen, CES, Yes. Example. Yeah. So I would hope that that still works. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I can do that today, obviously, with a, a Nest and an Android TV. So I would hope that that kind of thing continues. And I'm pretty sure that Ring will continue on as its own brand and all that. So I don't I don't expect massive changes as far as what it's going to work with and what it won't work with. I think it'll just be highlighted how well it works with Madam A. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we're getting to this point where everybody's got Amazon buying this almost feels like an acquiescence that you're going to have to have your own ecosystem. So like the Nest gear going into Google Home and being more closely tied, I can see Amazon looking at that and saying, oh, well, I guess we got to get our own gear too. And Mm -hmm. the other question is what happens to other partners who like Canary or Skybell, those who are working with Madam A already and now are like, wait a second. Mm Mm-hmm. So lots of questions. Consolidation. It's, it's going to be a mess. And I, as consumers on the end, I'm kind of like consumers, we could be hosed a little bit with our, our devices that used to work in multiple ecosystems. We may find them getting crunched, which is a shame because we bought them with the understanding that they would work with multiple ecosystems. Well, and they understand that they would continue to work if some of these other companies get squeezed out now. I mean, you know, the products that you bought that don't have a big name partner may not have a future. Oh. Yeah. That's oh. sad. That's Let's sad. See. That is sad. I'm like, oh, Canary. Oh. I'm trying to think of all the devices. Skybell. Skybell. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. an August doorbell. Mm-hmm. Also, final say on this is, to me, this signals the end of the rush of startups that came out in 2013, 2012, all around the IoT. We saw this huge, massive amount of kickstarted and venture-backed, crowdfunded and venture-backed companies in 2012, 2013, even a little in 2014. But basically, if you weren't out and finding a market by then, it feels like you were kind of out of luck in... We're seeing that with the end of a lot of devices, and it's kind of sad. So we talked about this early on with Matt Turk. He was a guest a while back, and he was like, yeah, that era is over. I think he's right. So, bummer. It's very sad. Very sad. What else will we talk about on the show? We'll manage. We could talk about a new camera. Oh, yes. Let's talk about it. Google Clip is finally out. This was the camera they announced at Google I.O., and it was a $249 camera? Yes, that's correct. 
And still is. Still is. And basically, you set it somewhere and it decides the right time to take a picture and it takes it. And what's kind of, it also has a button so you can take pictures yourself. But the idea is that you're living your life and Google decides what moments are photogenic and saves them for you. Yeah, which it's actually an intelligent idea because Google has so much data from Google Photos about you, you know, who's in your family, who are the people that you care about, that you take pictures a lot of, what pets, you know, do you have that you take pictures of. This takes you from behind the camera and puts you in front of the camera with those people and things and and intelligently captures, or at least supposedly captures, you know, meaningful memories. I don't know if you, did you read the reviews at all, by the way? Yeah. Did you see any good ones? So... (laughs) I think the surprise, so I did see Farhad Manju in the New York Times wrote a really excellent story about both Google Clip and Lighthouse, which is now out. And Lighthouse is another intelligent camera. And his his reviews weren't like, these are not pictures that I am used to taking, but it captured some really good moments that I would never have captured or even noticed, which is that good? I I think it's a totally different type of camera. So I think Mm -hmm. if you expect... Much like people poo-pooed smartphone pictures for their DSLR, DL, D- DSLR, DSLRs, mm-hmm. I think we're going to poo-poo this type of innovation for a while, but I think we're going to start getting used to seeing them. And then once we're acclimated to it, we're going to start treasuring these like little moments that have been captured. Well, I, I agree. It's early days. This is like the first camera of its kind, so to speak, on a mass market level. And it's going to take time for it to become smart enough to truly become valuable to us. So I agree with you. I, I wouldn't write it off. I don't think it's quite ready for everybody to rush out and buy one based on what I've seen. I have not used one, but I've read every review out there from people that I know and trust. And I'm like, yeah, it's just not not enough value for the $249 yet. Yes, I would so say that. The other thing to note is Google is thinking about privacy. So these things stay on the camera until you get it to your phone and then you choose what images. So if Google's clips catches you running across the living room in a towel or without any clothes, you can just delete that. That would be a moment. That, <laughs> I'm like, maybe it's significant. Maybe it's not. It's doing its job. It's capturing a memory. But I think the key here is recognizing, and Farhad actually did a really good job of explaining this and recognizing that this is a big thematic shift in imaging technology. Beforehand, we had cameras that were dumb. That just, you know, to make a judgment call, a human had to be involved with normal cameras. But now the cameras are making their own judgments on behalf of humans. And since computers, which these are, are so much more scalable, we're going to have the ability to make judgments about pretty much everything every second of the day. And that's actually really freaky from a surveillance. Um, Yeah, you know, I would say... Cameras actually are pretty smart even before this came out, and they took away a lot of the human judgments in terms of photo composition. You have things like laser autofocus, multi-point focus, so it, it can determine what the actual subject of the photo is. And these are all technical things, not AI type things. Now we're adding AI. So, you know, the point and shoot type features of many cameras today are so smart that they rival a completely manual camera. So to me, this is the next step. It's just, it's a very first step. Okay, sure. So aesthetics have been, we've been using AI for aesthetics for a while. Now we're using AI to make all kinds of things, all kinds of judgments. Okay, so keep that in mind. It's a little freaky. We'll probably talk more about this at other junctures. But now let's move on to Mobile World Congress. 
the show of shows. It used to be CES. Now it's totally Mobile World Congress. <laughs> happens in it's happening in barcelona this year. is it barcelona this year it is in barcelona yes okay. so and also we should say this week embedded world is also happening in germany not seeing a ton of great news out from that but check out the newsletter if you want some when it comes out we'll put it in the newsletter so back to mobile world congress qualcomm is doing a couple things that i thought was interesting one is they've got they've taken their snapdragon high-end phone chips, and they've created embedded versions. The important thing about these embedded versions is they're going to have support contracts for five years, seven years, however long. They're going to be made for the embedded market. And this means that they're going to have a longer support life and be around for longer if you want to build them into your products. Yeah. And these are also very capable chips that the newest one is anyway, because it's built on the Snapdragon 820, which was basically what was powering flagship phones just two years ago. So it's not like a low power type chip that you might see in, say, a smart plug or something. This is going to have a lot of computing power, relatively speaking, for an IoT device. Yes. And a lot of computing power, all the connectivity that you would expect, and basically longer support and mostly longer support. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm like, that, that's the big thing here is they're going to stand by it for longer than they traditionally have for a smartphone chip. And some design considerations went into that as well, but it's it's primarily support oriented. Qualcomm also did a, they did two different types of pre-configured modules. One is for LTE, which is great because then you can, it's a software development kit and module that you buy it. And then you can connect it to a variety of different LTE networks around the world, which is just easier if you're trying to build something. And then they also did a pre-configured multi-radio module for, I'll call it the home. So it has Zigbee, yeah. Thread, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, they actually have two different versions of that. One has Wi-Fi and one does not. Right. Sorry. Yes. Nope. One is super low power. One is less low power. <laughs> the other thing, real quick, before we move on, that jumped out to me, these two that we're talking about now, actually come with pre-integrated support for HomeKit. I'm like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm still not sold. I'm sorry. I hear you. But hey. yeah, good. <laughs> good for them. HomeKit. It's not dead <laughs> yet. It won't ever be dead. I shouldn't say that. No. Okay. AT&T. They are powering all the connectivity for Caterpillar, which is they make all kinds of industrial and farming equipment. What's cool is they also had a very nice story and a SIM card announcement around mobile health. And I pay attention to this because AT&T actually led the way with connecting cars. They are by far the dominant provider for connectivity in vehicles. They've got- In the US. In the US, sorry. They've got Tesla, (laughs) they've got Ford, they've got tons. So they picked the right market there. And that was good. And I'm interested because now if they're really doubling down or focusing hard on medical, then maybe it's actually time for medical to to be a thing. I feel like I've been saying this for a decade. So I'm like, eh, is it really? Well, you know, it's funny because I remember, gosh, this goes back about six, seven CESs ago, seeing the um, little pill cases that had connectivity in them Mm -hmm. and would tell you, it would have a light also, tell you it's time to take your medicine. And then it could determine if you did. And if you didn't, it could use that connectivity to like reach out to a, a healthcare provider and say, hey, this person's not taking their meds and all that. I don't remember if AT&T was involved with that one. but AT&T um, was. It was a company called Vitality. There you go. Yeah. So It's time again for them to get involved with health. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. But see, take the Qualcomm news that we saw. 
about like LTE based modules. And that's the kind of product a medical device manufacturer wants. So right. high powered Snapdragon, you know, capabilities with long term ish support. And so we could be seeing what we need to make that happen. We'll see. Okay, let's get to fast news bits. Yeah, so this kind of came out of nowhere, and it just happened. The person in charge, basically, of Madam A, and also the person who created the Madam A prize, which is a million-dollar prize to create a chatbot that can interact with a human by itself for 20 minutes, his name is Ashwin Ram, and he has left Amazon and is now the technical director of AI at the Google. Hmm. That is exciting. And as a bonus to this, Kevin has found a really interesting read about building conversational chatbots that will stick in our show notes, because you should read these conversations. Yeah, these are the actual conversations that the people going for the Madam A prize, it was a million dollar prize, by the way, were uh, trying to win. So these are their people testing the chatbots. And the conversations are sometimes scary, but also very interesting. By the way, I got a question from one of our listeners who was like, I don't know what you're talking about when you say Madam A. So Uh, everybody mute your echoes. Just spell it. (laughs) All right. We're talking about the Amazon Echoes brains, A-L-E-X-A. We try not to say it because we don't want to set everybody's echoes off. Right. One day we will have access to Amazon's magical high frequency noise that they play beforehand. And maybe we can get our our own version of that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we can reverse engineer it. Hmm. Here we go. Kevin, get on that. Get on that, yes. All right. In other news, Mist, a company that is selling enterprise intelligent Wi-Fi, has raised $46 million. I really wanted to talk about this because Mist has changed its marketing in the last probably 18 months or so. And I think it's worth noting, they started out actually touting virtual beacons location, basically. So you could actually run their software on your access points, your Wi-Fi access points, and use its software to place virtual Bluetooth beacons that could interact with your employees' phones. And I thought this was awesome. But apparently the market was not keen on this because now they're touting themselves as an intelligent Wi-Fi vendor for the enterprise. And they're using very similar spectrum analysis as how they're doing this capabilities to say, What's wrong on your network? How many devices are on your network? So they, a couple months ago, or maybe a month ago, announced a skill for Madam A that basically you could, you could say, Hey, Madam A, why is Bob's smartphone not on the network? And it would tell you. So how many iPhones do I have on the network? And it would be able to give you that information. And the answer is more than you think. More than you think. But now you (laughs) will know because you can see them. So I just thought this was an interesting shift because one of the things Kevin and I were disappointed about last year was the lack of like exciting location as a good context. And it sounds like location is still not doing it. Not not, not getting there. Yeah. People people are not excited about it. So no, I actually like the whole virtual beacon idea, but honestly, I'm not hearing a lot about beacons in general. It's like that technology that's like, it's great. It's just that nobody's using it. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on it, but Apparently, we're excited about something that no one else is excited no one about. So, welcome to our world. Ta-da. But more sad news. More sad news. Staples Connect is finally dead. So Staples Connect came out, gosh, in like 2013. I was really excited about it. They actually showed it at one of our first conferences that we hosted as IoT people when we were back yep. at GigaOM. Mhm. And it was a Zonoff built it. 
And it was a backend platform plus a hub that connected lots of different things, including, you know, smoke detectors, Lutron lights, and all kinds of other products. Eh, nobody really bought it. It was actually one of the best and well-designed platforms out there, especially for normal people. And they stopped supporting it, you know, when Zonoff went to ring and Staples decided to shut it down. And now it's totally gone. You can't access yeah. the service at all. You know, I don't think the problem was the platform because, as you said, it was one of the better ones around at the time. Nothing against Staples, but I don't know if that was the right place to sell it. Yeah, nobody. I mean, retail IoT is really hard. Tough. It's tough. So, oh, here's a good thing. A good thing. The Fabaro smart plug is shipping. This is, Kevin really likes this. This is a Z-Wave yeah. smart plug. You like it. You tell us about it. Sure, sure. I saw it at uh, CES and shared a picture on our Instagram page, talked with the uh, Fabaro folks about it. So it's, you know, it's your typical smart plug. It just takes up one outlet. You don't, and you know, obviously it, it itself is an outlet, but it doesn't cover up the second one, which is nice. It has a really nice LED ring around it. And that is kind of cool because you can change the color of it. You can use it as a nightlight, but you can also use it to determine how much power is coming through the outlet at any given time, which is really cool. It's $50, it's a Z-Wave outlet. If you want to spend an extra 10 bucks, and I probably would because this is cool, it adds a USB port to it as well. So you can charge something and then you can monitor both the output of the outlet itself as well as the USB output. Woo. It's so very pretty. Very it is, pretty. It is a Fabaro makes well-designed stuff. Yeah. Yep. So other news, Samsung Bixby speaker push to the second half of 2018. Yeah, they were hoping to do it in the first half of the year and then it MWC earlier this week, they announced their Galaxy S9, S9 Plus, and of course, it's got the dedicated Bixby button. So their Bixby smart speaker isn't quite ready. They're talking about improving Bixby, calling it Bixby 2.0, at least internally. And I have a feeling that's why the smart speaker itself is pushed out, because they want to improve the voice assistant, something that other companies <laughs> I was gonna say, don't you, do. You wouldn't want to have a uh, You wouldn't want to have a $350 speaker that's not too smart. Just saying. There we go. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I also, I met with our, I met, I was at Bosch Connected World this week, and I'm not going to talk too much about it because there'll be more of this in the newsletter. It was cold. I think the big trend for enterprise and industrial IoT, whereas last year we focused a lot on security and proof of concepts. I think this year we're going to focus more on culture and making these things actually work with your staff and how to get your staff and employees on board with it and train them. So that's kind of one big takeaway. The other big takeaway is we're going to see a lot more competition as people build services. So we'll talk about it in future shows. But basically, I talked to Bayer, which is both a drug company and makes agricultural supplies. And they are trying to do agriculture as a service. So growing plants as a service. And they are building a connected weed killing machine that basically identifies weeds and kills them. If this sounds like what John Deere bought when it bought a company called Blue River Technologies last year, that's because it is exactly the same concept. What's interesting to me is both companies used to work as parts of the supply chain. So John Deere sold equipment to farmers, Bayer would sell seed and herbicides. What's happening is they're both trying to offer agriculture or yields as a service, which means they're both going after the same market now. And we're going to see this, this is just one example, but we're going to see this play out again and again and again with IoT. So just keep your eyes peeled for that. It's going to be fun. And now it's time for a voicemail from our listeners. The IoT Podcast Listener Hotline 
is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. Schlage electronic locks can make life so much easier and more convenient. No more keeping track of extra house keys. Each member of your family can have their own access code. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. If you want to leave a message for the IoT voicemails, please give us a call at 512-623-7424. And now, our message. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. My name is Christopher, and I'm calling you from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I was wondering if it's a good idea to segment all of your IoT traffic in your home onto a specific SSID on your router, segregating it from your computers, phones, and Wi-Fi-connected TV devices. I'm thinking of segmenting it off onto a guest network from a security perspective, but I don't want to lose functionality in doing so. I haven't started setting up smart home devices yet, but I plan to do so in the near future. We are an Apple household, so my preference would be to use HomeKit. I have a router that can handle multiple guest networks, so I can do this and still have a guest network available for my kids' friends to use when they come over. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for your help. Oh, Christopher, this is such a good idea. It's so good. And I'm very concerned that you're going to get frustrated, which is exactly what happened to me when I decided to try to do this. So you can do this in setting it up on a guest network and the ability to have multiple guest networks is great. So the challenge comes in when you want your phone to act as something for geofencing. If you don't care about things like that, you actually should be okay. Because the challenge is your phone's going to come in and connect to your regular network as opposed to your guest network. And in a lot of cases, that can be a trigger for events to happen. It's not always a trigger, but you will quickly find out what devices use it as a trigger. But if you're not super keen on that, then it is actually possible and fairly easy to do. And the challenge is you won't encounter the hiccups until you get a particular device. And I'm sorry to be so vague. <laughs> well, I, I remember you went through this and, it, and it, it did present some little challenges. You know, I, I wonder about, will I get my notifications? Can I still control all my devices from the phone and all that if we're on different networks? So it gets so, yeah. tricky. Like one of the it's thi- tricky. a core thing I noticed was my video doorbells. So they were on the guest Wi-Fi network, which basically turned them into when I was in my home on my phone, instead of being there, my phone read it and the video doorbell, it read it as remote. So it just added a couple extra seconds. Right. Those are the kind of things where now what I didn't have at the time, which could be fun is if you have like the Nest doorbell and it ties into your, you know, Google home thing or your Android television, then you might actually get those are all in the same local network. So it's going to bypass your phone anyway, if that makes sense. So that actually might be a way to solve for some of that little additional latency? Yeah, you're going to have to really think about this to see which products talk to each other and how you want to be notified and use these products. I mean, my Android TV does get information from my Nest camera. They are on the same network. I don't think it would work if they were on different networks. Right. But the key is if you have your computers and phones, and the phones are really the question. The other thing that gets interesting is like when I have Spotify playing on my phone, it actually can see all of my Sonoses and my Amazon Echoes and my Google Homes. And it can actually cast essentially to the, I know it's not casting in other ecosystems, but whatever. It, right. it sees all those and I can just cast it to that thing, which I couldn't if I was on a different network. So again, it's very use case specific. 
I say give it a whirl. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to have a couple devices and you're going to have to go through the setup process and change their SSIDs again, which, you know, isn't fun, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. And and I think it's a question of balancing security versus convenience, really. And you've got to, that's a personal decision at that point. I pretty much have everything on the same network, but I do, I have security concerns. So I, I certainly recognize the, the importance of Christopher's question here. Yes, we're not at all denigrating your question. We you. just haven't. Unless we can have a, and maybe, maybe phones should come out with, you know, the ability to hop onto both networks. I'm not sure how that would work. Okay. Well, right now it wouldn't. Right. Exactly. Long pause <laughs> while we ponder the imponderables. Okay. Mm. Well, Christopher, excellent question. Remember, we are here for you. We have probably made similar mistakes as you guys are trying to make, and maybe we've even found a solution. So give us a call at 512-623-7424. And now let's go to a message from our sponsor, after which we will have our guest, Dominic Sheener of IOTA. He is on talking about the IOTA blockless blockchain. I keep wanting to call it a cryptocurrency, but it's really not. It is a distributed ledger. You're going to find out what it's for, why we call it blockless, and why we're trying to not focus on cryptocurrency aspects. This week's show is brought to you by Internet of Things World. This week, you can save up to $600. IoT World is the world's largest IoT event taking place in Silicon Valley on May 14th through 17th. Take your IoT strategy from implementation to results as you learn from industry veterans and real-world case studies. The agenda covers strategic and technical content from every sector. We've got smart cities, industrial IoT and manufacturing, smart homes, smart construction and building, energy and utilities, connected cars, and more. Prices do go up midnight on March 2nd. And if you're listening on Thursday, know that prices go up tonight at midnight. That's midnight, March 2nd. To learn more and register to attend, visit iotworldevent.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Dominic Sheener, who is the co-founder of IOTA Foundation and the creator of IOTA. Hi, Dominic. Hey, everyone. Most of you guys are probably aware of what IOTA is, but quickly, Dominic, will you explain for folks? Yeah, of course. So IOTA is basically the further improvement upon the blockchain. So it's no longer based upon a blockchain, so it's a distributed ledger technology. And the main focus of IOTA is to really unleash the full potential of IoT. Okay, so we're going to dig into that. But first, let's talk about everybody who's familiar with blockchains and things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. You guys are a little bit different because you're technically blockless. What does that mean? Exactly. So let's let's talk about why we are blockless, right? So so back in 2015, because we are like really technologists, we realized that the blockchain architecture itself is very inherently limited. So we have scalability issues, we have transaction fee issues, we have this minor oligopoly that is really not helping us bring these these new protocols to production. So what we realized that then back then is that we need to further improve the blockchain itself to really make it scalable and bring it to industry and to production, right? And so what we did then is we, we looked at the blockchain architecture itself and realized, hey, like, it shouldn't just be like this sequential chain where it's block after block after block, but there's some different ways to achieve what we want. And what we want is consensus of what is true and what is not true. And exactly because of that, we then came up with this DAG architecture. So it's a directed acyclic graph. It's no longer based on a blockchain. So we call it the Tangle. And now the beautiful thing about the Tangle is that we have no miners, right? So... Now, every participant in the network that executes a transaction also participates in this validation and confirmation of transactions. What this means concretely now in IOTA, 
when you execute a transaction, you have to confirm two transactions in history. And through that, those two transactions get increasing confirmations, right? And the beautiful thing now for you as the one executing a transaction, you have to pay no transaction fees. What this means now is that we solve the minor problems. We solve the transaction fee problem because now we can truly do micropayments, right? And the other thing is we solve the scalability issue because now we are no longer limited to the block sizes, to the block intervals, but it's really this graph that can scale dynamically. Okay, so we're going to break some of that down because with Bitcoin and other traditional blockchain technologies, the more information you have, the longer it takes and the more compute power you need to actually validate things. And this is the scalability issue that you were referencing. And so here, because I am saying, hey, if I want to validate something, I also have to promise or actually validate two things behind me, that solves that problem, right? Exactly. So we can look at this, think of it like a pipe. So this pipe gets full nothing can go through and everything is stopped, right? And, and that is basically a blockchain, right? I can't push more transactions through because the pipe is full. Now, the beautiful thing about IOT is that we are no longer limited to a single pipe, right? It's a new architecture that, that isn't based on a sequential chain. And the main reason why IOT is scalable is that it's horizontally scalable. What this means that now is that with more network participants, transactions get confirmed faster and I can also achieve higher transaction throughput. Okay. Now, I keep reading that the number of IOTAs out there have been set. And so I'm trying to understand how that works with the validation happening behind us. And so I think there's there's a mix of what IOTA is supposed to be doing and the cryptocurrency world that is a little confusing for me. So one thing to emphasize here is that IOTA is a permissionless distributed ledger. That means that our goal is it really for anyone to be able to participate in this network that we've built. What this means now as well is that we have a cryptocurrency that is intrinsic to this protocol, right? And this cryptocurrency is there for you to be able to transfer value and to hold value. But the thing is now, the beautiful thing about IOTA is that you can utilize IOTA without having a token. So for example, a transaction IOTA can do two things. Either it contains value, meaning this cryptocurrency that you're transferring, or it can contain data. And if it contains data, the main use case that comes out of that is, is data immutability, right? Data integrity. And IOTA is the only protocol that enables that because now you can really validate transactions out having a token. So it has completely different incentive structures. So the token was just a way for you guys to raise money? No, totally not. So that's not right. <laughs> so the token for us is an intrinsic component of our vision because our vision is this machine economy. And what this machine economy means now is that machines in the future are able to hold value, hold money, and are able to transfer on demand. But the thing is now when it comes to this machine economy, it has to be permissionless. This means that anyone can participate, anyone can contribute, and anyone can start earning money by, for example, selling computation to a car that is in the vicinity or something like that, right? That means that we need to have a cryptocurrency because only if you have a cryptocurrency, you have this permissionless component to it. Like there's no censorship, there's nobody controlling it, and it's purely peer-to-peer, machine-to-machine. Okay, but this gets into a deeper issue with almost all blockchain or blockless chains efforts out there, which is they're correlated so strongly with cryptocurrencies that people are focused on the value of your token as opposed to what you can do. Yeah, exactly. So let's look at the entire blockchain space. So, so 2017 was the year where everyone was chasing new money streams, right? Everyone just wanted, everyone joined the blockchain community just to make money. And it's just truly sad because we just completely lost sight what this technology is actually there for and why we invented it, right? We, we invented blockchains and distributed ledgers to solve fundamental issues in society. And we want to solve issues with trust. We want to enable new business model and models and solve problems, right? But at this point, everyone is just too focused on the speculation. And, and I can personally tell you that I'm really sick of it. 
which is why we are really focused on this pragmatic vision. We want to bring IOTA into the industry, which is why we really focus more on industry partnerships, proof of concepts that we do with big companies to really, first of all, um, educate them about the technology and then concretely work on a product roadmap and strategy so that we can really bring this into production. Because at the end of the day, those cryptocurrencies are useless if there's no adoption behind it. That is true. And we do need something to allow machines to talk to each other and transact at least information, if not actual monetary transactions. So talk to me about some use cases that your customers, your users are looking at. Yeah, of course. So so let's look at two different use cases. And the first of all is over-the-air updates. So for example, with cars. So when it comes to over-the-air updates, there's a very interesting problem associated with that. So let's look at Tesla, for example. So Tesla already today has over-the-air updates, something that Volkswagen or others don't have. But the problem now is like if there's an accident and police or the investigators are like want to figure out like, hey, what software firmware was running on the vehicle? There's no way to prove that today because there's no secure audit trail that you can know like which software was updated and installed in the, on the vehicle. And another problem is obviously when the communication channel is capped and there's an attacker, the data package itself can be tampered with, right? And now here's where IOTA comes into play because what IOTA enables is two things. For one, we can really enable the secure transmission of data by enabling this end-to-end verifiability so that the car can really verify that the data that it got is from Volkswagen, is from Tesla and so on and so forth. That's the first use case, so really security. And the second one is now inside the vehicle, we have to secure audit trail. So we know which software was installed at each point in time. And we can really make sure that this audit trail can then be securely shared with third parties like the police such an investigation. So that's the first use case with data to data. Let me ask you a question, a follow-up on that use case first, which is how do you see the police getting that audit trail? Because it would be awesome if it happened like right then as part of your accident report. But exactly. what kind of software needs to be running on their phones or tablets? So all they need to run is an IOTA node, right? They don't even need to look into the vehicle itself because the vehicle itself has a secret key that can now be shared with the police. And now the police has access to the entire audit trail. And the good thing is that because this is obviously a distributed, replicated ledger, they can easily just verify the data that they get. And now on to your second use case. Exactly. So the second use case is focused on payments. So payments, let's think about the most important component for a vehicle in the future is, is the wallet. Because now once a car has a wallet, it's no longer just automated, right? It's completely autonomous. Because now what the car can do is, for one, it can start earning money, like really a shared mobility. Think of it like Uber, like having a fleet that has wallets and you as a customer automatically pay per meter that you drive during micropayments. Super interesting, right? Tesla will not allow me to do that with my future automated Tesla. I would hope so. Like, I really hope that they will embrace this open ecosystem thought, right? But but no, now the even more interesting use case is now when the vehicle starts paying others, right? So the vehicle starts paying the infrastructure for parking, for toll station, for, for electricity and so on and so forth. Or the vehicle starts paying other machines. Like one of the very interesting use cases that we are focusing on is, is data monetization, right? Now the vehicle can start collecting data, it can sell it on an open marketplace, and through that have a new revenue stream to really earn money. So I love this idea a lot, but it also gets into this the inherent conflict like with what Tesla's doing. The world seems to be with IoT moving to subscription-based. What you're talking is very transactional-based, and it feels like as a user, that might be awesome, but if I'm a big company, I don't see... I would much rather have people buy a subscription. Right, right. So, so that's a very, very good question. So, so the thing is, it's all about business models, right? And if there's a business model behind the monetization of data or anything else, it's really about like, hey, what's the most efficient way to actually be able to earn money? And so there's always a difficulty today, hey, how can you monetize some like 
different business components, and oftentimes they don't have an answer. And so micropayments are truly an answer to, to unleashing the potential and actually unlocking these business models so that companies can actually start earning money. But there's an even interesting, more interesting component to that because now if you do micropayments, you can really have this fine granularity. You can pay per resource unit. You can pay per usage unit. And now we are truly unleashing the potential of IoT because IoT is not going to be about subscription services, right? It's autonomous machines that make transactions on demand and want to have these fluid interactions with the entire environment, with the ecosystem. An IoT device doesn't want to have a computation subscription, right? It wants to pay on demand because you don't know when it's going to need it, right? You want to do it on demand, on the spot, pay per resource unit. So I love this concept. How long do you think till we get there? It took us a long time to move from like licensing models for software, for example, to subscription models. And now what you're proposing per resource unit is even more extreme. Yeah, this is just a very, very tricky question. And I get it asked a lot. So when will this really be unleashed? So, so let's look at the cryptocurrency itself. Because the biggest problem that we have today is we are not a currency, right? We're kind of like a speculative asset. Our goal is to really build the currency out of this, which really means like having an ecosystem and having actual adoption. Now, now the difficulty, obviously, is the volatility of the market. And we are thinking of some different solutions how we can actually enable these micropayments with IOTA tokens themselves and in the car, right? So that the car has a wallet and is able to transact IOTA tokens without the volatility. Like that's kind of the key component to actually enabling this. But I think what's even more important than that is, is to really think about what in which areas are we going to see this first adoption of micropayments? And we are still trying to figure out where we are going to see this. And I think when it comes to data and computation, like having data marketplaces and computation marketplaces, that's where we're going to see the first adoption. So I've been covering data marketplaces since like, I want to say 2008. It was so exciting. I have been on the cusp of loving data markets forever and they never happen. And at first it was an infrastructure issue, but the cloud felt, it felt like that solved it. Then it became kind of a micropayments and a trust issue. So do you really think we're there? I mean, it feels like people who want to buy into the marketplace don't actually want to contribute their data. So in my opinion, the main difficulty becomes like, what is data worth, right? So this pricing component of data is just incredibly difficult and nobody has been able to solve it yet, right? There were subscription services with Reuters, for example, and so on and so forth. But that is not really unleashing the full potential of a data marketplace. And so I think now everything is kind of coming together, right? Like in 2008, IoT was not really IoT. And now with IoT actually becoming IoT with, with fog and edge computing, now we really make it possible for a machine to be able to collect the data and sell it on the market. And that definitely, so in my opinion, because these different technologies, IoT and blockchain are really like having this convergence now, I do think that now is the right time for a marketplace to establish itself. But the difficulty obviously becomes, how do you make it possible for entire industries to adopt it? Because there should be one marketplace. Because if you have these fragmented ecosystems, again, it's not really unleashing the potential, right? There's no interoperability. There's no real benefit. And that's why, in my opinion, we as a non-profit foundation, with no like big incentive other than pushing technology, are also uniquely positioned to help foster and build such a marketplace and bring it to the market. As long as it's open source and we have this, this component of permissionless ecosystems integrated, I do think that now is the time. What about privacy? That's been a complaint by corporations against the blockchain for a while. Yeah, privacy is key, right? Because the, the ironic part is that because it's so transparent, everyone can see what's being input, right? And we have some solutions to that. So for one, there's zero knowledge proofs, which is more like esoteric and hardcore cryptography that is able to solve this privacy component. But there's already solutions today, like, like, for example, what we've developed is called masked authenticated messaging. 
So it's, it's like a module on top of IOTA that makes it possible to encrypt the data. So the data is encrypted and is input into the Tangle. So what you get now, you get you still get the same immutability effect, and only certain authorized parties can read the data out of it. And now you can really decide, hey, like who are the stakeholders that I'm going to share this data with? Okay, final question. What do I need at the edge to run this? To run IOTA. So that's right now, IOTA has a reference implementation. So there's, we still have this longer product roadmap to actually make sure that IOTA runs in embedded. So that's why for us, this collaboration with bigger companies like Bosch, like Volkswagen, is really key in ensuring that we really get IOTA running on the edge. So there's, in my opinion, it becomes, so IoT is a very hierarchical system. So then the question becomes, where should you integrate the IOTA node, full node? So what we are working on right now is really so smart home hubs where IOTA can be really well integrated. So now those machines that are in the vicinity, like for example, the door or, or the coffee machine, all they really need to be able to do is to sign transactions. Because they can sign transactions, they can have a wallet, right? Because now they can hold tokens, they can sign the transaction, they can transfer tokens through that. And this ability to sign just means that you have a tiny microprocessor can run some basic cryptography. Okay, I lied to you because now I want to, you know, I run a bunch of different gateways in my home. What ones could I install IOTA on? What gateways? Well, like I've got the Mozilla. I just downloaded the Mozilla effort. I have the OpenHab running. So would any of those, how could I do this? Yeah, definitely. So, so one thing to emphasize is that we are actually working with the manufacturers and the open source platforms that enable those gateways. So we want to set up some partnerships with them to actually integrate IOTA as a standard SDK kit, for example. But today it's already working. So, so I don't think it should be a big problem to run IOTA there, as long as you can run Java. So how could I get IOTA running on my own smart home? So you can just go on GitHub, you can download the core client, you can run a tutorial, and then you can get started, right? Our big goal right now is to really foster this innovation around IOTA. So we want to emphasize, uh, we want we are building this, this environment so that developers can really start building new applications with IOTA. And so we have, for example, the Sandbox, which makes it super simple to build new applications with IOTA so that you can have this micropayment component and you have this data integrity component that you can easily install in your app. And through that, you can start building new cool stuff. All right. I'll have to start thinking about that for myself. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.